What's up, everybody? It is me, Emmett, your Nuclear Barbarian, and this is your weekly installment of the Nuclear Barbarians podcast. Today, I am here with the titan of nuclear himself, <laughs> Brett Kugelmass. He has been in here one of the longest and definitely some of the strongest. How's it going, man? Yeah, no, it's great to see you. So happy to be on your show. After our last conversation, I was I was excited for this. So yeah, let's do it. Yeah, likewise. So you are the host of the Titans of Nuclear podcast. I'm sure my listeners are familiar with that. And you are at the Energy Impact Center, right? Yep. Founded oh. the Energy Impact Center four years ago to look wow. into climate and energy and arrived at nuclear being totally misunderstood and totally under leveraged. And so, you know, almost all of our work goes towards nuclear now. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, so that's something that I wanted to ask you about. When I listened back to the episode that we did together, I was like, what's Brett's background? I was like, where did he come from? Um, I mean, I have tons of questions also about your, like what you've learned doing Titans of Nuclear, but I'd love for the audience to get to know you, and I'd love to get to know you a little bit more. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, my old career, I've been you know, in the, in the technology space, I, after I finished up my master's at Stanford in robotics, I started a aerial robotics company, a drone company, Nice. Uh, ran that for five years until it was acquired in 2017 and then had the time to do some soul searching and resources to look into a few things. And so, you know, I, I, I think when I first started, I was maybe more of an, a climate alarmist than I am now. You know, I, I've been heavily influenced by Schellenberger's and, so, you know, uh, but obviously a lot of these things are tied together. Like sure. the main advantage that nuclear has in climate due to its you know energy density also applies to air pollution, applies to energy security, applies mm -hmm. to, you know, abundance and prosperity. I mean, it's all tied together, you know, to some of the very special, you know, physical characteristics of this mm -hmm. Of this energy source and so and so yeah and so this is you know this is this has been my my, my work for the last you know four years now this is who i am now <laughs> yeah i mean when so when i first started working for michael schellenberger at ep i was like i need to know more about nuclear and titans of nuclear was the like one of the first things i found and so i was just like going on walks warming up at the gym like listening to people talk about things I did not understand yet. But I was like, if I just inundate myself with enough info, I'm going to learn about it. And I learned a ton. And you were talking to people who were really in the industry. And you've done, what, over 300 episodes now? Yeah. And then between you know our other podcast, over 400. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, what you were looking for was what I was looking for. I yeah. wanted to learn more about nuclear. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, if it, the first three months were a struggle to get anyone to talk to me because I was an outsider. I mean, some people I heard later accused me on Facebook message boards of being a spy from the oil industry. Wow. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So like the youth, the, I guess there's like a youth nuclear cohort and they wouldn't talk to me because wow. of that. I only found out about that later when I became like actual friends with some of them. Amazing what that'll do. <laughs> uh, and, and then, um, but you know, I met a few people like Todd Allen, Todd Allen really opened up the doors to me to the entire nuclear industry. He was one of our first five people that would, you know, for one of our first five episodes and a guest, and he started introducing to me. He took me on a tour to Idaho National Labs, where he'd been a director, deputy director at some point, and kind of you know, rolled out the red carpet and 
And then after that, people talk to me because, you know, INL, Idaho National Labs is well known throughout the industry. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, it was just a matter of you know, building credit, you know, struggling to build credibility in those first 30 episodes. But then after I did about 30, anyone that I wanted to would talk to me. And then it was just about how much information can I soak up in the fastest amount of time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, what did you did doing? So I run two podcasts as well. And I know that it has really changed the way I approach issues because you get to talk to people all the time. You learn stuff all the time. If you're doing it right, you're often like punching out of your weight class when you're getting interviews, you know? What's that been like for you? Have, has it changed the way you've looked at nuclear, the world, energy in general, politics in general? What's happened? Yeah, all of the above, but I think probably the most important part that you left out was, but maybe we're alluding to, was it's changed the way that I ask questions. Mm-hmm. So when you have a normal conversation with someone who is a subject matter expert in a field, if you ask them like, you know, talk to me like I'm five questions, yeah. they they stop wanting to talk to you. Just, I don't know, that's just like how it is. They, they mm-hmm. think like, why am I wasting my time with this person if they don't understand anything? Yeah. Like, people don't want to talk to people like they're five. But if you are asking them from the perspective of, hey, I'm on a podcast, I've got, you know, at first hundreds, then thousands, and then we had tens of thousands of people listening to us. Talk to me like I'm five because you were you were actually talking to the audience. Yeah. And it's understandable that the audience needs to be, you know, needs kind of the basic version of or the basic explanation of any given topic. And they're not wasting their time because they're they're, you know, building up their own platform. It allows for you to really explore things, like like really dig in. It's like when someone says an acronym. I mean, my biggest pet peeve are acronyms. And the challenge is if 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 you stop every five seconds to be like, "Hey, can you spell that acronym for me?" People get frustrated. But once again, they get it if it's for an audience, like a non-subject matter expert audience, that they have to spell the acronyms. And that's half of the battle. Just learning any subject matter is just dissecting the acronyms. Yeah, totally. I mean, I remember when I first started reading high level philosophy like five years ago and people kept talking about the subject. And I was like, what the hell is that? I remember like getting out of dictionary and looking up subject and I was like, no, this isn't it. What is that? And what they really meant was like the person, you know, but there's a special philosophical connotation of that. And I feel like the energy stuff can be very forbidding for people because of the acronyms, because of the technical terminology for what can be simplified concepts. Yep. And, you know, I don't know how much of it is intentional to like, you know, show your like to, to purposefully exclude people i don't mm-hmm. know how much of it is just to show that you're in the club it's some sort of tribal signaling yeah i uh, i don't know how much of it is natural and this is just like the yeah the way human creating their own language right or if it's just part of yeah or it's just part of like expertise accumulation you know what happens but i think it speaks to a problem we've sort of implicitly identified and talking about it is that the I mean, there isn't really like a nuclear industry like there is in other countries per se in America, but nuclear in America doesn't have the best public facing image or explanatory power. And I was wondering if you had any insights into why that is, how that came to be, or and how you think that could change. Yeah. I mean, listen, that was, I'd say my, my key takeaway after my first year of conversations, I think we did maybe a hundred podcast episodes. That really meant 
over 800 conversations behind the scenes. Mm. I, and when I kind of sat back, I took a couple of months off at the, at the end of the first year, just kind of reflect upon my learnings. And I came to this, you know, unorthodox conclusion that the nuclear industry was its own worst enemy. Mm. And that was by design. Okay. I think that was, that was, I might be the first person to have kind of made that claim because it's super counterintuitive. It's like, well, how can an industry survive if it's its own worst enemy? And that's by design. That doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Except what you realize is the nuclear energy industry as it exists today is not about selling energy. It's mm-hmm. about selling radiation protection services. Oh. It's about selling decommissioning services. It's about selling, it's about accumulating research grants. It's about you know, taking what is otherwise a billion dollar coal plant and selling $9 billion worth of quote unquote safety systems on top of it to call it a nuclear plant. Um, That's where they make their money. They do not make their money off of the effective delivery of electrons. Wow. Okay. So I have a lot of questions about that. That is, you know, that is the hot take express right there. Uh, (laughs) And I'm glad we're on it. So when did that start to become clear to you? Was there like an aha moment or was it gradual? I mean, no, it was very gradual, but I, I like, I mean, maybe the articulation of it was an aha moment. I mm. use these words like, you know, the, like the self cannibalization of nuclear. I think that was an aha moment yeah. when I came up with phrases like that, but it was a gradual, listen, it was partially driven by the frustration of like me asking the same question over and over again to virtually everybody, mm-hmm. which is if Fukushima if in Fukushima, we had three gigawatt scale core meltdowns, you know, the loss of every single safety system, the loss of the roof mm-hmm. and nobody died. Why is nuclear regulated at all? Yeah. Right. Like it's like an es- escalators kill. I don't know, 20 people in the U S every day. I, I don't know about an escalator regulatory agency. Like, so it's like, I, I like, so you, you go around, you ask enough people that in the nuclear industry and then and they all come back to you with the same thing. Well, it should be regulated. That's really important. And like, okay, well, that's interesting. Why do you say that? Yeah, that's like reg- regulation is PR. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and then you really do- you know, dig into them with like, well, well, okay, well, what are you trying to do? And, and what they're trying to do, every person's answer falls into roughly one of those categories. It's that we need advanced technology to, if you're talking to the advanced technology people, it's like, we need advanced technology to make it safer. I'm like, okay, but I just told you that there's no inherent danger to the meltdown of a light water reactor as empirically demonstrated by Fukushima. Mm -hmm. And and then they, and then they'll cover that up with, well, the public doesn't feel that way. And you need to get the social license. And then I ask him, well, you know, is it possible that the reason the public doesn't feel that way is because you, the expert, are telling them that it needs to be safer? So you have that conversation, you know, 30, 40, 50, 100 yeah. times. You have it at. So I started having a conversation one on one. And then I, you know, because I, yeah, listen, I built up some thought leadership over all these podcasts. So people then started asking me to speak at conferences. And then I would say the same thing publicly in front of audiences of a thousand nuclear engineers mm-hmm. and nobody could refute, like nobody had an explanation for why they felt that nuclear needed to be ever more safe, mm-hmm. but there was no inherent danger present. Like nobody could reconcile that. And then there's this quote, you know, I came across this quote at some point 
now I don't even know who was from or something. I don't know, Mark Twain or who, who knows. It's yeah. like you can't pay a man to understand when he, when he's paid not, or you can't get a man to understand when he's paid not to. Or yeah, something that's like James that. K. Galbraith. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that is definitely a misattributed quote all over the internet because yeah. I've never heard that before. And so I realized that was happening. There was a lot of that going on. And then of course, it's like, you know, I, now the nuclear community has also become my social network to a certain extent sure. as well. So you get to go have beers with people and you just see their story to- after two beers, three beers, like their story, the story totally changes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they admit to it. They're like, yeah, my entire career, my entire job, I, every dollar that my salary you know, has come from has gone towards making nuclear quote unquote safer. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so what we've got is a safety industry. We don't have a nuclear power industry. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's, I remember thinking about that when the Texas froze and, you know, the nuclear plant out there did really well. It was like one of the best systems. Like everybody's like, oh, well, it dropped a little bit. I was like, well, everything did. But like, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, yeah. and part of it was because there were safety mechanisms in place just to make extra sure nothing happened, you know, and I'm like, why isn't, why isn't the utility that owns that like bragging about it? And then I looked into their portfolio and I was like, wow, you guys own a lot of wind out there too. <laughs> you know, yeah, I was like, you've put yourself in a position where not only are you not selling electrons, you're selling safety, but you also can't create a positive public image because that will also draw attention to things that aren't working as well. Right, right. So I should be more precise. They're not actually selling safety. They're selling fear. That's yeah. the business model to make everyone afraid of new, whether they realize they're doing it or not. It's to make everyone afraid. So you have to invest in ever more safety. Yes. I mean, I think we see that a lot. That has been a dominant paradigm since i was a teenager like that's what when i was growing up the war on terror was this is everything it's the tsaification yes, of exactly. the energy economy <laughs> i couldn't agree more that's it's such a perfect example and maybe you know not to get too you know contemporary and sure. political right now but maybe this we'll start seeing the same happen with you know, yeah every variant that ever comes out you know requires oh, totally no I, I think that's fair to say you know at some point we have to there is a certain type of security theater that becomes parasitically lucrative. Oh, yeah. And that's what happens. It's a secondary economy built on misunderstandings that are convenient for certain firms and for certain people who want to exert a level of influence and power, often anti-democratically, yep. into everyday life. Yep. Yeah, well, I mean... That's the thing. It's like the, the nuclear industry, when it was cost effective, was not actually lucrative to the nuclear players. Let's look at a specific example. Yeah, please. It's so like po- Point Beach One, a power plant that was built in three years, you know, provides like half a gigawatt of power and cost $400 million in inflation, you know, inflation adjusted, right? Like this plant. That's you know, amazing. Be, yeah, amazing. So <laughs> That's amazing. amazing. But, here, but you know what the crazy part of it was? Huh. Do you know how much the nuclear companies made out of that? Not very much. Even no, at, so yeah, low. Yeah. So, so, so it was such a cheap plant to begin with. So nobody's making a lot of money, but that's fine because like the utility was building it. The nuclear OEM comes in and maybe installs $50 million worth of equipment, you know, and and their costs to subcontractors were probably like 40 million. So it's like the nuclear industry, quote unquote, could have supplied power for the entire world and never reached a, a billion dollar market cap. Whereas like the nuclear safety industry 
makes a billion a year at the Hanford site alone, right? It makes like billions a year at the Fukushima site, you know, just for like cleanup and digging up holes of dirt, you know, and they have, but in order for that to exist, wow. radiation has to be infinitely dangerous. Yes. And that's what, and that, and that is one of the, the core premises that the entire nuclear industry is based off of that this, 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 I mean, I hate to say lie because it's just so harsh, but let's just say like six order of magnitude exaggeration about mm-hmm. the dangers of radiation. Yeah. That's the, what is it? As low as reasonably acceptable or something, the Alara that's, framework. That's part of it. But honestly, it goes way beyond that even. I mean, this goes into the medical community. They're, they're referencing mm-hmm. They're referencing radiation protection standards that are propped up by the nuclear industry that you could say are meaningfully like hurting people's medical outcomes in a hospital setting just because of the over precaution in terms yeah. of use of radiation. But but so, so there's the, yeah, as low as regionally achievable, there's the actual codes and standards themselves as to about the toxicity limits. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can find in the, in the literature itself where they say, well, here's what we had proof, like, you know, after the wind scale fire in the UK. This is when a lot of the toxicity limits for, for source term were you know, first established. And you can see in the literature right there, when, when they first started publishing their radiation codes, they said, okay, well, he, here was the like, discernible impact that we could prove based on that. Let's just go 10 times lower just to be sure. And then 10 times lower is now written into the code. Oh, my okay, God. So that's, that, right. But, but that's just where it starts. Since then... So that's 10 times lower for like an acute dose. And then that was exaggerated now for a cumulative dose over a year. So there you go. There you have it. Another six order of magnitude offset in terms of what the actual impacts of radiation are on the human body. Right. Somebody once explained it to me. Like It is like counting every single cut you've ever had in your entire life, measuring the blood loss and going, you're technically dead now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's, that's a good the way one. it works. Yeah, I've heard people talk about like, you know, Advil as well. You know, if you accumulate acute dose to cumulative dose, that would be the same as saying that taking, you know, one Advil every day for 100 days is the exact same thing as taking 100 Advils all at once. Like we all know that that's not true, mm-hmm. but that is, the, that is written into law for the nuclear industry. And, and that is one of the founding pillars of why nuclear is so dangerous that we have to add an extra $9 billion worth of quote unquote safety equipment to every otherwise normal standard thermal power plant. That is wild. Okay. So if I'm hearing you right, nuclear was very cheap to build, almost too cheap to build. I'm sure this is part of where the too cheap to meter idea starts to come from as well. People people scoff at that. People laugh at that. I'm like, stop laughing. It really is too cheap to meter. Like that's the whole point. We We could have had a world where that was true and you stole it from us. Yeah, exactly. And a few things sort of happen at once. I'm sure that this accumulates and probably hits a peak in the 70s because this is when a lot of things start to shift. Keynesian economy falls apart. The fall of the House of Labor you know, the dawn of what becomes the prominence of the fire economy, Kanban stuff, just an entirely different approach to the way we look at society should be structured around, to borrow from Marx, its means of production, right? And the way that utilities 
make money through this is it's sort of like the handshake meme with them and the environmentalists between enviro fear which is totally misattributed to civilian nuclear and their ability to tack on costs and run overages that they become parasitically attached to because it ultimately ends up being their moneymaker. That's the picture I'm getting. Is that yep. correct? That's, yep. That's what we saw from, from 1968 to 1978. We saw that exact phenomenon. We saw, you know, the, you know, regulatory capture, you know, the NRC was formed in 1973 and, you know, there you've got now a more formal way to implement these mandated, you know, cost increases on a per facility basis. And then, yeah, price gets driven up. The utility keeps capturing more and more profit because of it uh, up until a certain point where the rate payer and the public commissions push back said, you've gone too far. Mm -hmm. And then there were 200 contracts on the books leading up to 1978 that if, you know, for for gigawatt scale nuclear or approaching gigawatt scale nuclear that were all canceled. And this happened before Three Mile Island. So the industry was dead in the water before Three Mile Island. And then, you know, they saw this you know, public fear come into, come into place and totally capitalized on it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, imagine going from making like t- tens of millions of dollars per plant to instantly being able to capture $300 million per plant to do three mile island safety upgrades. This That's, is like, this has been a new business model. Which is so wild. I actually talked to somebody the other day. I <clears throat> teach the great books online and I was doing a class on the first half of Thucydides. And somebody was like, I live near Three Mile Island when it went off because I found out that one of the people in the seminar had found the Nuclear Barbarian substack and had become a subscriber and all of that. <laughs> and they brought it up before we started talking. And the guy was like, you know, I live there. He's like, and now I realized all my fears are wrong. And I was like, interesting. Okay, so that's good. Like people can be convinced, but as you say, there are a lot of paychecks hanging on the balance of that scale like what are there off ramps to this like because now it seems like we have a few problems right we have some cultural entrenchment that's going to be really hard oh yeah to pull out of especially because it doesn't happen with just nuclear as we've talked about like i'm still taking off my shoes at the airport Exactly. Security. I'm still taking off my shoes. Yeah. Yeah. Security and especially biosecurity are becoming important paradigms for how we discuss what happens in society and whether something's good or bad. And then we have regulatory capture. And then we have, I think, I mean, (laughs) it's, I'm trying to figure out the way that I want to say this. Well, then there's industry inertia too. It's like yeah, that's that's it. I was going to say like manage decline, something like that. Well, yeah. So the, the problem is, it's like if if you let's say you were to make a real concerted effort yeah. to change public opinion, specifically on the safety issue. I actually think public opinion is pretty much in favor of nuclear. Like I think we've got a majority. Yeah, yeah. We've um, seen we've, the recent polling has actually just come out that it's like yeah, it's like near sixty percent, and I'm like, yeah. great. Yeah, but if you want nuclear to be cheap and and be able to deploy it very quickly, we've got to totally overhaul uh, the requirements, the regulatory requirements. And I think it's another, it's another thing asking the public to like something versus asking them to, you know, strike 99.9% of nuclear regulations, you know, get it back to that, uh, the amount of regulatory scrutiny that an escalator has. 
remembering yeah. that when an escalator goes wrong, it kills someone. When a light water reactor melts down, zero people die. Yeah. Safer than an escalator is something that I like. As a talking point, I mean, it also seems like that would be just a brutal fight in the House and Senate. Yeah. Well, so, so here's the problem, because like, what expert witnesses would you be able to call up people from the nuclear industry? No, no, no. They want the regulations. So just imagine how that looks. If you parade yeah. both sides, the pro side and, and the against side, and both sides are saying more nuclear regulations. Mm-hmm. Like, how could you convince the public if, if you call up all the people with the most prestigious nuclear yeah. accolades? Yeah, yeah. someone from GE Hitachi and Paul yeah. Dorfman being like, we really need more nuclear regulation. Yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, so yeah, so that, so it might be, yeah, it might be impossible in the American context. Right. I mean, that's something that I worry about for America is that it has really backed itself into, it's painted itself into a corner with yeah. this. And it's clear that the cost for trying to decarbonize through renewables is high because it increases your sensitivity to all sorts of externalities that nobody likes blackouts you know you're more sensitive to weather right which also has the convenient ability of making apocalyptic environmental fears appear true yeah yeah, yeah exactly you know so there's there's that type of thing like is there would there be any hope for and this is just mind experiment, right? Like, let's say, okay, we're just in a stuck position when it comes to current nuclear. Do you say that there's more hope for getting advanced through and that that's where we should be putting it? Or what's your thought on this? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's worth testing. And I'm so glad. I mean, there are a bunch of startups out there that are, that are mm-hmm. testing this. I think where a lot of them go wrong is to denigrate the existing nuclear. I think when Thank they do you. that, yeah. I, th- I, th- I think that's their big mistake. I- I'm all for them rebranding themselves as something new and shiny and special. Everybody loves minute- new car smell. Yeah, yeah. But the minute that they say that they're safer than the a power plant, what they yeah. what they don't realize that they're doing is, first, they are inst- instilling the sense of fear into um, their person's mind, and and they think that they're overcoming it by saying they're safer, but they actually have no credibility. And so, in the person's mind, in a polite conversation, they may be like, "Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, you're safer. I love that." But mm-hmm. in their mind, you're not actually proving to them that you're safer. All you've done is made the entire space seem more dangerous. Yes. And so what they actually do is walk away from that conversation emotionally thinking, well, let's just go with renewables. I'm sure they'll work storage out. Right. Exactly. They're like, I know what a battery is. It's in my phone and it doesn't yeah. kill me. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Like that's the, I think there's this other thing that like nuclear advocates or let's say experts in any field have a hard time understanding and it's that people without knowing it reference the experience of their everyday life, even like non-linguistically when they think of these things, Mm -hmm. somebody says battery, they think about their car battery. They know what that is. You know, they rightly, because you have to put it down to the scale of what they experience every day. Like, the amount of fears around nuclear have interrupted the layperson's ability to do that for nuclear yeah. because it seems at this point spectrally spiritually large yep. like to the point of eschatological danger end of the world type stuff yep 
Yeah. And they've got a lot. And, you know, I think, you know, something I often refer to is that France used to give tours of their nuclear facilities. Mm -hmm. And so people kind of grew up thinking, oh, I know nuclear, I was in a nuclear plant and that, you know, down, I think that downgrades the fear a little bit. I like that. I think that's another problem that nuclear, like this other like negative feedback cycle that nuclear has is, you know, you, you increase the regulatory burden, they have to make them bigger to, in order to, to be able to pay back the costs. When you build them bigger, you make the projects less frequent, like less frequent in terms of time, but also in terms of space, which means that people have less access to them. Mm-hmm. I think if every, if every town had a mini nuclear plant, whether or not this is the most cost-effective way to do it, I think if every town had a nuclear plant, just like they had a water tower and it yeah. even had some like cool, you know, physical thing associated with it, maybe mm-hmm. not an ugly containment dome, but something cool and physical that mm-hmm. you could drive by and point to. I think that would actually go a long way towards building familiarity with the technology. Yeah, I think so too. This is, I wrote something that got a little bit of attention for the Substack on why I thought a lot of the designs for advanced reactor plants were self-defeating. And a lot of it had to do with their min- like boardroom minimalism. And the important thing there is that the minimalism of late modernist and postmodernist art comes out as a response to the fears of kinetic chaos that technology has brought into our world, especially in the post-war era. Mm. There's this idea that things must be reduced. It is its own austerian psychology. Yeah. And so when you see these things that look so smooth, this is the same thing with smoothness, right? This is our new paradigm of that, where the idea is that if you make something less frictive, it makes it more free. But anybody with a smartphone can tell you that they now feel like weirdly welded to this smooth (laughs) interface that they have. And it becomes a type of uh, psychic entropy in their everyday life, that smoothness. And that is the problem with these designs is that they don't feel integrated into society. They feel like someone above you's idea of what the future should be. (laughs) And what I recommended is that to the extent that you could have aesthetically way with the plant design itself, whether this be painting or the structure itself, it should reference the regional vernacular of the area. So it feels integrated into everyone's life. The idea that it needs to look like industrial progress, which is really just like bad CGI from a recent Star Trek movie, like I don't think is is appealing in the same way. Like like you said, you know, if it's just the containment dome or whatever, that can feel like over-industrialized and weird to people. And we shouldn't say that this is an industry or we're trying to hide industry. It's actually just the opposite. It is the smoothness and the minimalism that is fearfully trying to hide from people. It's wow. Industry. I'm so glad you brought that up. I hadn't heard that perspective before. It makes sense. And now I've got to somehow incorporate this into my thinking on the topic. Yeah, that's That's a really cool insight that you have there. Thank you. I mean, I think that that is some of the work that people need to do, like in spite of nuclear, right? Like, it's so funny. There's just a ragtag band of people who are really, really passionate about it. And they are doing all of the PR for this industry that is like economically uninterested in saving itself. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
yeah, or economically maligned against saving itself. Yeah. Say, yeah. So yeah, I, I wanted to make sure I, I fully wrapped your question there though. Do I think that the advanced reactor community is going to change the narrative? Yeah. Or could. I think it's, yeah, could. I think it could for sure. Yeah. I, th- I think it's a really interesting opportunity. Yeah. I also think I love the work that Adam Stein and Ted Nordhaus and I think a few other people have been doing watching the like permitting process for new scale with the NRC. It has shed a lot of light on like how defanged I think that uh, regulatory body needs to be. I'm like, why? This is crazy. How would you get anything approved through this? It's it's wild. I mean, I think, listen, it's not just new scale. The last the last three designs that went through the, or maybe it's even four, that went through the NRC licensing, none of which are operational today, possibly because of the licensing. Mm-hmm. The AP1000, the EPR, the ESBWR, and now New Scale are all on the order of a billion dollars. A billion dollars to prove something is safe that when we know, once again, empirically demonstrated Fukushima, when it melts down, nobody dies. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the one other thing I should also add to that, because people will be like, oh, well, the environmental contamination. Yes. One teaspoon, one <laughs> teaspoon of iodine-131 yeah. spread out across 100 million acres. Yeah, real environmental contamination. Right. And then they'll start sharing that NOAA map with you, <laughs> the heat map. Oh, uh, yeah, have you seen exactly. that one? Yeah, exactly. I love that. Well, like, listen, that- I could do the same with my breath. So listen, when I breathe out, watch this. No, no, no. But- That's 1.2 billion carbon-14 atoms, radioactive carbon-14 atoms. Yeah. And this is going to spread across. Do you know how far my breath goes? That yeah. breath is going to spread across the... I just contaminated the entire mainland U.S. with that one breath. I can show a heat map that shows that. <laughs> but here's the thing. The heat map isn't even that. It was NOAA measuring or looking at the wave patterns that the tsunami oh. created. Okay. Oh, no, so they totally, to okay. I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. That is the extent to, I was, or they post, they'll, oh, they'll, yeah. they'll be like, well, what about this? And it's one of the like gas generators at the same plant exploding. And I'm like, fishing is in combustion. What yeah. are you doing? Well, so, here's the, here's the one that I'm trying to now draw illustration to. Yeah. So according to the, what I think is a totally exaggerated toxicity profile of iodine-131 because they don't draw, they don't really distinguish between this acute dose and cumulative dose. The, the toxicity is about on par. The toxicity limits are about on par with chlorine. So one, you know, a one part per million, that's about the allowed toxicity limits. I'd say it's, it's way too exaggerated, but fine, let's go with it. Mm -hmm. We all have an intuitive understanding of, of what it, like what dilution does to chlorine. Like if I take a teaspoon of chlorine, I would not feel comfortable eating it. Same with iodine-131. Wouldn't feel comfortable. I pour it in a swimming pool. That's probably not enough to even clean up the swimming pool. And I've swallowed some swimming pool water before. Okay. So like already at swimming pool level, it's like sufficiently diluted. Yeah. We add chlorine purposefully to our drinking water, right? To Mm -hmm. clean up some of the bacteria, I guess, or something. And, and, and the, the, the volume that we're talking about spreading it across is just so like enormous. Like this mm-hmm. was the environmental contamination of Fukushima. Just imagine one teaspoon of chlorine throwing out into the ocean and then spending $200 billion to clean it up. That's astounding. I mean, that's just, oh man. <laughs> so, okay. This is, a lot of this sounds like a deadlock right that we've entered into i don't know if that it seems like there are some bright signs coming from europe right now 
where you at least have people being Boris Johnson being like, we're going to build some reactors, you know, Macron being like, I'd love to see some EPRs, whatever. I'm like, great. You know, whoever's doing it. Meanwhile, like Rosatom is still crushing it. Their public PR is amazing. Because they're actually trying to sell a product. Right, yeah, they're actually trying to sell something. And (laughs) China has just agreed to build more. So I don't want to say that globally nuclear is stopping, but what's is there anything giving you hope for the American scene for nuclear? Well, I've been trying to encourage uh, nuclear developers here in the U.S., or I should say nuclear technology companies, because what I painfully realized is that there aren't any nuclear developers. So let's say nuclear technology companies. Mm-hmm. I've been imploring them to consider alternate regulatory regimes in order to fast track the progress. And then maybe once they've got some real world examples, then they can bring it back to the NRC and say, hey, listen, because listen, one other caveat I want to make is I don't think mm-hmm. the people at the NRC are bad. They're caught up in a, in a whole thing. No, like it's an agency. Them. It's bigger yeah. than they, they are. Yeah. I, I, I like them. I think that many of them are trying to do the right thing. But yes, the institution is is bigger than they are. And I think that's probably what you need. You probably need that proof point here, 10 operating advanced reactors in, I don't know, Bulgaria or something. Yeah. Um, we're going to give you the operational history. We're going to show you the schematics that was actually built. Can you please fast track the approval for this? It'd be really nice. Yeah. And maybe they will because maybe there'll be political pressure because whoever the president is going to be like, why does Bulgaria have American advanced technology, but we can't have advanced mm-hmm. technology. I'm hoping maybe that narrative gives me hope, but that has yet to be tested. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, what's been, I've been really excited about is to, is actually Joe Manchin of all people. That's the West Virginia guy or something? Yeah, yeah. he's very pro-nuclear. <laughs> is it West Virginia, does do they even allow nuclear on the bus? Well, that, that just got reversed. Oh, did? Okay, I wasn't following. Yeah, and he said, he said, I would love to see more. uh, He was like, I would love to see nuclear in West Virginia. All the coal guys know that the clock is ticking on their ability to do it. And West Virginia, one of the poorest states in the country, is rightfully a little bit freaked out about that. Nuclear seems like the way to go. Yeah, but West Virginia is regulated by the NRC. So I just like... I mean, I'm not saying people take be... the same about Puerto Rico. They're like, oh, Puerto Rico really needs power. I'm like, yeah, but it's regulated by the NRC. So it's yeah. like, how are you going to get them power? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think that's the that's the major get, right? Is you when I talked to you, I became really convinced that whether or not you're saying we're saying that the market forces can do it if the incentives are there, or we're saying we need something like a Mesmer plant, regardless, the regulatory paradigm has to change the amount of inertia it creates the amount of fear it sows and the perverse incentives that like barnacles get stuck to it you know are unacceptable yeah for nuclear's future in this country yeah yeah i mean i don't know about the mesmer plant stuff i I mean Chris Kiefer, you know, uh, podcaster friend of ours, mm-hmm. uh, he pushes for that. I'm not sure if in in 2020s that Western construction companies and with their the, the perverse incentives of their business models allow for something like that because like bridges and tunnels also turn from one billion dollars to five billion dollars. Yeah, and like a bridge is really simple, really simple. Mm-hmm. Like I looked at the Bay Bridge, I saw it. It's not much to it. Yeah. Like, like a first-year mechanical engineer can pretty much, you know, do the proof on that, or sorry, a structural engineer, mechanical. They can all do it. It's pretty simple. Yeah. Uh, and yet they got the price wrong, but from one billion to five mm-hmm. billion, 
on what's going on there. And I think that's a function of yeah, Western construction companies, how they're able to extract more money on these mega projects and, and the alignment of incentives. So I, I think it could be tough, but I, but I do think that if you created a, a competitive market for people to develop and build mm-hmm. nuclear projects and they were able to use that competitive pressure in order to push back on what some of these new giant construction companies do naturally, mm-hmm. then I think, yeah, you could have really cheap nuclear, really cheap and really fast. I mean, I'm just going to offer one more, please, uh, one more just like top level comparison. So a coal plant and a nuclear plant from like an infrastructure perspective are pretty simple, like pretty si- similar. The CapEx, you know, let's say you take away all the scrubbers and everything coal related, the CapEx of a, a coal plant you're looking at something like $15 a megawatt hour. You know, the OPEX of a nuclear plant fuel costs are like $5 a megawatt hour. So yeah, so theoretically, a nuclear power plant should be $20 a megawatt hour with 1960s technology. Like, like that is the, that's the cheapest, that's the cheapest energy and yep. it's baseload and it's distributed and it's everything fuel else. On site, baby. Cost. Yeah. And it's yeah. also the freaking cheapest energy humankind has ever seen. Yeah, and that's exactly. using 1960s technology. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a positive note. I like that. So we're gonna end it there. I really want to thank you for your time. This was excellent. I hope we keep talking in the future. And to all the listeners out there, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, stay strong, stay sharp, and stay radiant, my friends. Until next week.